Section twenty eight of The Natural History, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Natural History, Volume four, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Book nineteen, Chapter ten. The Bulb Aerophorus. Theophrastus informs us that there is a kind of bulb which grows on the banks of rivers and which encloses between the outer coat and the portion that is eaten a sort of woolly substance of which felt socks and other articles of dress are made but in the copies those at least which have fallen in my way there is no mention made of the country in which it grows or of any details in connection with it beyond the fact that the name given to it is Aerophyron. As to Spartum, he makes no mention of it whatsoever, although he has given the history, with great exactness, of all the known plants, three hundred and ninety years before our time, a fact to which I have already alluded on other occasions. From this it would appear that Spartum has come into use since his day. Chapter 11. Plants which spring up and grow without a root, plants which grow but cannot be reproduced from seed. As we have here made a beginning of treating of the marvels of nature, we shall proceed to examine them in detail, and among them, the very greatest of all, beyond a doubt, is the fact that any plant should spring up and grow without a root. Such, for instance, is the vegetable production known as the truffle. Surrounded on every side by earth, it is connected with it by no fibres, not so much as a single thread even, while the spot in which it grows presents neither protuberance nor cleft to the view it is found in fact in no way adhering to the earth but enclosed within an outer coat so much so indeed that though we cannot exactly pronounce it to be composed of earth we must conclude that it is nothing else but a callous concentration of the earth truffles generally grow in dry sandy soils and spots that are thickly covered with shrubs in size they are often larger than a quince and are found to weigh as much as a pound there are two kinds of them the one full of sand and consequently injurious to the teeth, the other free from sand and all impurities. They are distinguished also by their color, which is red or black, and white within. Those of Africa are the most esteemed. Whether the truffle grows gradually, or whether this blemish of the earth, for it can be looked upon as nothing else, at once assumes the globular form and magnitude which it presents when found, whether too it is possessed of vitality or not, are all of them questions which, in my opinion, are not easy to be solved. It decays and rots in a manner precisely similar to wood. It is known to me as a fact that the following circumstance happened to Lartius Licinius, a person of praetorian rank, while minister of justice, a few years ago, at Carthage in Spain. Upon biting a truffle he found a denarius inside, which all but broke his four teeth, an evident proof that the truffle is nothing else but an agglomeration of elementary earth. At all events, it is quite certain that the truffle belongs to those vegetable productions which spring up spontaneously and are incapable of being reproduced from seed. Chapter 12. Mysi, Iton, and Geranian. Of a similar nature, too, is the vegetable production known in the province of Cyrenaica by the name of Mysi, remarkable for the sweetness of its smell and taste, but more fleshy than the truffle, the same too as to the Iton of the Thracians and the Geranian of the Greeks. 
Chapter Thirteen, Particulars Connected with the Truffle. The following particularities we find mentioned with reference to the truffle. When there have been showers in autumn and frequent thunderstorms, truffles are produced, thunder contributing more particularly to their development. They do not, however, last beyond a year, and are considered the most delicate eating when gathered in spring. In some places the formation of them is attributed to water, as at Mytilene, for instance, where they are never to be found, it is said, unless the rivers overflow, and bring down the seed from Tiara, that being the name of the place where they are produced in the greatest abundance. The finest truffles of Asia are those found in the neighborhood of Lampsaeus and Alobiconesis. The best in Greece are those in the vicinity of Elis. Chapter 14. The Pazika. Belonging to the mushroom genus, also, there is a species known to the Greeks by the name of Pazika, which grows without either root or stalk. Chapter 15. Laserpitium, Laser, and Mespitum. Next to these, Laserpitium claims our notice, a very remarkable plant known to the Greeks by the name of Silphion, and originally a native of the province of Cyrenaica. The juice of this plant is called laser, and it is greatly in vogue for medicinal as well as other purposes, being sold at the same rate as silver. For these many years past, however, it has not been found in Cyrenaica. As the farmers of the revenue who hold the lands there on lease have a notion that it is more profitable to depasture flocks of sheep upon them, within the memory of the present generation a single stalk is all that has ever been found there and that was sent as a curiosity to the emperor nero if it so happens that one of the flock while grazing meets with a growth shoot of it the fact is easily ascertained by the following signs the sheep after eating of it immediately fall asleep while the goat is seized with a fit of sneezing for this long time past there has been no other laser imported into this country but that produced in either Persia, Media, or Armenia, where it grows in considerable abundance, though much inferior to that of Cyrenaica, and even then it is extensively adulterated with gum, sycophenium, or pounded beans. I ought the less then to omit the facts that in the consulship of C. Valerius and M. Heranius there was brought to Rome, from Cyrene, for the public service, thirty pounds weight of laserpitium and that the dictator Caesar, at the beginning of the Civil War, took out from the public treasury, besides gold and silver, no less than fifteen hundred pounds of laserpitium. We find it stated by the most trustworthy among the Greek writers that this plant first made its appearance in the vicinity of the gardens of the Hesperides, and the greater Syrtis, immediately after the earth had been soaked, of a sudden, by a shower as black as pitch. This took place seven years before the foundation of the city Cyrenae, and in the year of Rome, 143. The virtues of this remarkable fall of rain extended, it is said, over no less than four thousand stadia of the African territory, and upon this soil, Laserpitium, began universally to grow, a plant that is in general wild and stubborn, and which, if attempted to be cultivated, will leave the spot where it has been sown quite desolate and barren. The roots of it are numerous and thick, the stalk being like that of a fennel giant, and of similar thickness. The leaves of this plant were known as mespatum, and bore a considerable resemblance to parsley. The seeds of it were foliaceous, and the plant shed its leaves every year. They used to feed the cattle there upon it, 
At first it purged them, but afterwards they would grow fat, the flesh being improved in flavor in a most surprising degree. After the fall of the leaf, the people themselves were in the habit of eating the stalk, either roasted or boiled. From the drastic effects of this diet, the body was purged for the first forty days, all vicious humors being effectually removed. The juices of this plant were collected two different ways, either from the root or from the stalk, in consequence of which these two varieties of juice were known by the distinguishing names of Rhizius and Coleus, the last being of inferior quality to the other, and very apt to term putrid. Upon the root there was a black bark, which was extensively employed for the purposes of adulteration. The juice of the plant was received in vessels, and mixed there with a layer of bran, after which, from time to time, it was shaken, till it had reached a proper state of maturity. Indeed, if this precaution was neglected, it was apt to turn putrid. The signs that it had come to maturity were its color, its dryness, and the absorption of all humidity. There are some authors, however, who state that the root of laserpetum was more than a cubit in length, and that it presented a tuberosity above the surface of the earth. An incision, they say, was made in this tuberosity, from which a juice would flow, like milk in appearance, above the tuberosity grew a stalk, to which they gave the name of Magidirus. The leaves that grew upon this stalk were of the color of gold, and falling at the rising of the dog-star, when the south winds began to prevail, they acted as seed for the purpose of reproduction. It was from these leaves, too, they say, that Laserpitium was produced, the root and the stalk attaining their full growth in the space of one year. The same writers also state that it was the practice to turn up the ground around the plant, and that it had no such effect as purging the cattle that were fed upon it. The one result of using it as food was that such cattle as were ailing were either cured of their distempers or else died immediately upon eating it, a thing, however, that but rarely happened. The first description, however, is found to agree more nearly with the sylphium that comes from Persia. Chapter 16. Megadarus. There is another variety of this plant known as Megidarus, of a more delicate nature, less active in its effects, and destitute of juice. It grows in the countries adjacent to Syria, but has not been found in the region of Cyrenaica. There grows also upon Mount Parnassus, in great abundance, a plant to which some persons give the name of Laserpitium. By means of all these varieties, adulterations are effected, of a production that is held in the highest esteem for its salutary qualities and its general usefulness. The chief proofs of its genuineness consist in its color, which ought to be slightly red without, and, when broken, quite white and transparent within. The drops of it, too, should melt very rapidly on the application of spittle. It is extensively employed for medicinal purposes. CHAPTER Seventeen, MATTER There are two other plants also, which are but little known to any but the herd of the sordid and avaracious and this because of the large profits that are derived from them. The first of these is matter, the employment of which is necessary in dyeing wool and leather. The matter of Italy is the most esteemed, and that more particularly which is grown in the suburbs of the city. Nearly all our provinces, too, produce it in great abundance. It grows spontaneously, but is capable of reproduction by sowing, much after the same manner as the fitch. The stem, however, is prickly, and articulated, with five leaves arranged round each joint. The seed is red. 
its medicinal properties we shall have occasion to mention in the appropriate place. Chapter 18. The Reticula. The plant known to us by the name of Reticula is the second of these productions. It furnishes a juice that is extensively employed in washing wool, and it is quite wonderful how greatly it contributes to the whiteness and softness of wool. It may be produced anywhere by cultivation, but that which grows spontaneously in Asia and Syria upon rugged rocky sites is more highly esteemed. That, however, which is found beyond the Euphrates has the highest repute of all. The stock of it is ferulaceous and thin, and is sought by the inhabitants of those countries as an article of food. It is employed also for making unguents, being boiled up with the other ingredients, whatever they may happen to be. In leaf it strongly resembles the olive. The Greeks have given to it the name of struthion. It blossoms in summer, and is agreeable to the sight, but entirely destitute of smell. It is somewhat thorny, and has a stalk covered with down. It has an extremely diminutive seed, and a large root, which is cut up and employed for the purposes already mentioned. CHAPTER Nineteen, THE PLEASURES OF THE GARDEN Having made mention of these productions, it now remains for us to return to the cultivation of the garden, a subject recommended by its own intrinsic merits to our notice. For we find that in remote antiquity, even, there was nothing looked upon with a greater degree of admiration than the gardens of the Hesperides, those of the kings Adonis and Alcinous, and the hanging gardens, whether they were the work of Semiramans, or whether of Cyrus, king of Assyria, a subject of which we shall have to speak in another work. The kings of Rome cultivated their gardens with their own hands. Indeed, it was from his garden that Tarquinius Superbus sent his son that cruel and sanguinary message of his. In our laws of the Twelve Tables, we find the word villa, or farm, nowhere mentioned. It is the word hortus that is always used with signification, while the term heredium we find employed for garden. There are certain religious impressions, too, that have been attached to the species of property, and we find that it is in the garden and the forum only that statutes of satires are consecrated as a protection against the evil effects of spells and sorcery, although in Plautus we find the gardens spoken of as being under the tutelage of Venus. At the present day, under the general name of gardens, we have pleasure-grounds situate in the very heart of the city, as well as extensive fields and villas. Epicurus, that connoisseur in the enjoyments of a life of ease, was the first to lay out a garden at Athens. Up to his time it had never been thought of, to dwell in the country in the middle of the town. At Rome, on the other hand, the garden constituted of itself the poor man's field, and it was from the garden that the lower classes procured their daily food, an element how guiltlessly obtained. But still, it is a great deal better, no doubt, to dive into the abysses of the deep, and to seek such kind of oyster at the risk and peril of shipwreck, to go searching for birds beyond the river Phasis, even, which, protected as they are by the terrors invented by fable, are only rendered all the more precious thereby, to go searching for others again in Numidia, and the very sepulchres of Ethiopia, or else to be battling with wild beasts, and to get eaten one's self while trying to take a prey which another person is to eat. And yet, by Hercules, how little do the productions of the garden cost us in comparison with these! How much more than sufficient for every wish and for every want! 
were it not indeed that here as in everything else turn which way we will we find the same grounds for our wrath and indignation we really might be content to allow of fruits being grown of the most exquisite quality remarkable some of them for their flavour some for their size some again for the monstrosities of their growth morsels all of them forbidden to the poor we might allow of wines being kept till they are mellowed with age or enfeebled by being passed through cloth strainers of men too however prolonged their lives never drinking anything but a wine that is still older than themselves we might allow of luxury devising how best to extract the very aroma as it were and marrow only from the grain of people too living upon nothing but the choicest productions of the confectioner and upon paste fashioned in fantastic shapes of one kind of bread being prepared for the rich and another for the multitude of the yearly produce of the field being classified in a descending scale till it reaches the humble means of the very lowest classes but do we not find that these refined distinctions have been extended to the very herbs even and that riches have contrived to establish points of dissimilarity in articles of food which ordinarily sell for a single copper coin in this department even humble as it is we are still destined to find certain productions that are denied to the community at large and the very cabbages pampered to such an enormous extent that the poor man's table is not large enough to hold them asparagus by nature was intended to grow wild so that each might gather it where he pleased but lo and behold we find it in the highest state of cultivation and ravenna produces heads that weigh as much as three pounds even alas for the monstrous excesses of gluttony it would be surprising indeed for the beasts of the field to be forbidden the thistles for food and yet it is a thing forbidden to the lower classes of the community these refined distinctions too are extended to the very water even and thanks to the mighty influence of money there are lines of demarcation drawn in the very elements themselves some persons are for drinking ice others for quaffing snow and thus is the curse of the mountain steep turned into an appetizing stimulus for the palate cold is carefully treasured up for the summer heats and man's invention is racked how best to keep snow freezing in months that are not its own some again there are who first boil the water and then bring it to temperature of winter indeed there is nothing that pleases man in the fashion in which nature originally made it and is it the fact then that any herb of the garden is reared only for the rich man's table it is so but still let no one of the angered populace think of a fresh succession to mount saker or mount aventine for to a certainty in the long run all powerful money will bring them back to just the same position as they were in when it wrought the severance for by hercules there was not an impost levied at rome more grievous than the market dues an impost that aroused the indignation of the populace who repeatedly appealed with loud clamours to all the chief men of the state to be relieved from it at last they were relieved from this heavy tax upon their wares and when it was found that there was no tax more lucrative more readily collected or less obnoxious to the caprices of chance than the impost that was levied in exchange for it in the shape of a property tax extended to the poorest classes for now the very soil itself is their surety that paid the tax will be their means are a patent to the light of day and the superficial extent of their possessions whatever the weather may chance to be always remains the same 
Cato, we find, speaks in high praise of garden cabbages. Indeed, it was accorded to their respective methods of garden cultivation that the agriculturists of early times were appreciated, and it was immediately concluded that it was a sign of a woman being a bad and careless manager of her family when the kitchen garden, for this was looked upon as the woman's department, more particularly, was negligently cultivated, as in such case her only resource was, of course, the shambles or the herb market. But cabbages were not held in such high esteem in those days as now. Indeed, all dishes were held in disrepute, which required something else to help them down, the great object being to economize oil as much as possible. And as to the flesh market, so much as a wish even to taste its wares was visited with censure and reproach. The chief thing that made them so fond of the garden was the fact that its produce needs no fire and ensures economy in food, and that it offers resources which are always ready and at hand. These articles of food, which from their peculiar nature we call vinegar diets, were found to be easy of digestion, by no means apt to blunt and overload the senses, and to create but little craving for bread as an accompaniment. A portion of them, which is still used for us by seasonings, attests that our forefathers used only to look at home for their resources, and that no Indian peppers were in request with them, or any of those other condiments which we are in the habit of seeking beyond the seas. In former times the lower classes of Rome, with their mimic gardens in their windows, day after day presented the reflex of the country to the eye, when as yet the multitudes of atrocious burglaries, almost innumerable, had not compelled us to shut out all such sights with bars to the passers-by. Let the garden, then, have its due meed of honour, and let not things, because they are common, enjoy for that the less share of our consideration, and the more so, as we find that from it men of the very highest rank have been content to borrow their surnames even. Thus in the Valerian family, for instance, the Latuccini have not thought themselves disgraced by taking their name from the lettuce. Perhaps, too, our labours and research may contribute some slight recommendations to this our subject, although, with Virgil, we are ready to admit how difficult it is, by language however elevated, to ennoble a subject that is so humble in itself. CHAPTER Twenty, THE LYING OUT OF GARDEN GROUND There is no doubt that the proper plan is to have the garden adjoining the country-house, and they should be watered more particularly by a river running in front of it, if possible, else with water drawn from a well by the aid of a wheel or pumps or by swipes. The ground should be opened just as the west winds are beginning to prevail, fourteen days after which it should be got ready for autumn, and then before winter solstice it should have another turning up. It will require eight men to dig a juggerum, manure being mixed with the earth to a depth of three feet. The ground, too, should be divided into plots or beds with raised and rounded edges, each of which should have a path dug round it, by means of which access may be afforded to the gardener and a channel formed for the water needed for irrigation. CHAPTER Twenty One. Plants Other Than Grain and Shrubs Among the garden plants there are some that recommend themselves by their bulbs, others by the head, others by the stalk, others by the leaf, others by both. Some, again, are valued for their seed, others for the outer coat, others for their membraneous tissues, others for their cartilaginous substance, 
others for the firmness of their flesh and others for the fleshy tunics in which they are enveloped end of section twenty eight